Hello, my name is Lance Griffin and welcome to Ridgecrest Stories. I'm the Recreation Minister here at Ridgecrest Baptist Church. This is a podcast of the church and today we are talking with Chuck Locke. His journey has been quite an interesting one to the front offices of Ridgecrest Baptist Church. He began in the ministry and then God decided to take him to the private sector where he figured out what Brown could do for him. In this episode, Chuck reflects on those people that influenced him and how and why he decided to re-enter the ministry as Ridgecrest's executive pastor. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome to Ridgecrest Stories. This is a podcast of Ridgecrest Baptist Church that allows you You don't always have an opportunity to sit down with the staff at Ridgecrest Baptist Church, but hopefully this podcast will serve as that opportunity. We are talking this morning with Chuck Locke. He is the executive pastor at Ridgecrest Baptist Church. Chuck, how long have you been executive pastor here? Well, January will be 10 years, Lance. 10 years, January. It's coming January, 10 years. And you were out of the ministry in the private working world at that point in time. You were working where? UPS. UPS. And how did it come about that you were you were called back in? How long is this podcast? Yes. Um, well, I, I'm a member, of course, at Ridgecrest since 1992 and um, was serving um, as a Sunday school teacher and, and deacon uh, when um, Pastor Ray came. And so we knew each other, of course, because of um, things within the church, different committees, um, things like that. And so he had uh, he had a secretary, Joanne Fortson, at the time gave me a, a call one day, and it was uh, uncommon to get a call from the church secretary. She said, "Hey, uh, Brother Ray wants to have lunch with you one day," and I thought, you know, real real briefly, I said, "Who did I make mad? Uh, I must have offended someone in Sunday school or in a meeting." Uh, he and I just didn't have practice to eat lunch, so we had uh, lunch, and he met me on my route and. I guess uh, years ago, I, I served uh, by vocationally. I was a uh, youth director when I was in School of Alabama and, and did some things after that in ministry, but had been out of it, uh, of staff ministry for probably at that time, um, for 15 years or so. Uh, so he, we talked, and it was a great lunch, but he said, hey, um, you still feel like God has a call on your life? And I said, well, sure. I mean, we all do. And that's been kind of my lance, you know that, just in being in connection group classes together, whatever. I see if you're a believer, you have a call on your life. We're all ministers of the gospel. So he said, do you feel like you still have a call? And I said, I do. And he said, well, the Lord has laid you on my heart. I want you on my staff. And you could have knocked me over uh, with a feather. And uh, my heart jumped in my throat. Uh, you know, the adrenaline picked up and I think I'll probably ask him something like, you know, what does that mean? I mean, you know, uh, a truck? I mean, what, what what do you want me to do? And he said, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. He said, I don't know when or what you'll be doing, but I just know the Lord's laid you on my heart. And I'm thinking back, Lance, that was probably in 2005. It was in 05. And he said, hey, keep this on the QT. That's one of his favorite sayings. And I said, okay. He said, you can tell Monica, but don't tell anyone else. So I went home and told Monica that night, and she was just ecstatic. She was great. 
And uh, unbeknownst to me, but she'd been praying about that for us to go into full-time ministry. And uh, she said, um, now when? I said, I don't know. Uh, it could take, I don't know, months. I don't know. She said, it's ah, great. It didn't matter. So uh, five years after that is when it came to fruition. Of course, we had lunch occasionally, and he would say, hey, still, still there. We're just waiting for the right time. Then I remember Fred Luter was preaching in awesome August uh, that year of 2009, and he came up to me and said, hey, are you ready? And I was in my Browns, UPS Browns, and came in uh, early. Uh, gotten off early that day. I requested a, an eight-hour work day. And I thought, he thought, okay, you need some help taking up the offering that day. And he said, no, are you ready? And I could tell by the way he's looking at me. He pulled me aside. He said, uh, it's, it's time. And I was so excited because I thought, great, I get to miss Christmas at UPS. That it couldn't work out better. And I said, when? He said, uh, January. And I had this forlorn look on my eyes. And he looked at me and said, what's wrong? And I said, I was sure hoping I would miss peak season at UPS. But so January 4th. 2010 was my first day here on staff at Ridgecrest. So let's go all the way back to some influences in your life, all the way back to some of your earliest memories. Uh, tell me where you grew up, uh, what your childhood was like, brothers, sisters, were you involved in church since you could remember, or did that come later? How did that all come about? Well, I was born in Tuscaloosa, but grew up here in Dothan. This is home. It has been. And uh, my parents, my mom and dad, <clears throat> I'm an only child. And so they, we lived uh, about seven blocks from Ridgecrest. And so this was the church we uh, joined. And uh, it's where I came to know the Lord uh, in 1972, uh, here under the uh, leadership of Jess Kennan. So I guess influencers, that was my first influence as a pastor was Jess Kennan, um, a great expositor, strong preacher uh, that I remember. Uh, Sunday school teachers, I had men like Morris Holloway. Um, that that taught Sunday school, and so that, I, I remember that as a great influencer, and, and different men that have gone on to be with the Lord now. Um, you know, you had um, uh, Mr. Johnny Middlebrooks was a great leader in our church uh, then, uh, that had a great influence on me. But um, other influencers were, of course, my parents. Uh, they they had me involved in church, and we came here to worship. Uh, I have a um, an aunt and an uncle, she's since passed away, but an uncle that lives in Malone, Florida, a great influencer, godly man. Uh, I've learned a lot of ministry uh, from him. He's a farmer, uh, but uh, how he went about his farming was ministry. So uh, his name's Ben Floyd, and so he was a great influencer in that. Then you, you fast forward a good bit, uh, when I was at the University of Alabama, um, yeah, professors there, but uh, had a pastor there that I, when I was a part-time youth director, Doug Reeves, um, was a great influencer. You fast forward then, and uh, Dr. Don Carroll, that uh, used to be at Cloverdale in Dothan, but uh, retired as a director of missions in Anniston for the Calhoun Association, great mentor. And then, of course, Jerry Spencer, when I was uh, a member here, and when I came back, what I call my second tour of duty at Ridgecrest after a I went away and went to school and came back. Um, and then, of course, our, our current pastor, Ray Jones. So I, I, a lot of pastoral mentors, I guess. I uh, really, hadn't really thought about Lance, so you asked me that. Uh, from Jess Kennan mm -hmm. uh, to Doug Reeves to Don Carroll to Jerry Spencer and to Ray Jones. 
Um, I, I would count them all uh, among, among some mentors. What was the occasion that led you to uh, accept Christ as Savior? How did that come about? It's on a Sunday morning service. As a matter of fact, I, I showed, uh, I have still have a letter I keep in my desk. It's a, addressed to Master Chuck Locke in uh, 1972. And uh, it was an eight cent postage from Ridgecrest Baptist Church. And um, so that's when I came to know the Lord, a Sunday morning service. But it was followed up from a really vacation Bible school. Uh, things and so that's that's when I really felt really the Lord leading me and I I remember that day quite clearly we were on the left side of the old sanctuary and um, it sounds self-serving but I was compliant as a child uh, basically because I feared for my life so that's what kept me compliant but I, I remember when uh, Brother Jess Kennan uh, issued the invitation I immediately slid to my left and I I can remember my mom grabbing for me with her left hand and missing. And uh, she didn't know where I was going, what I was doing. It was unusual. You didn't move in church then. Uh, if you needed water, you waited till you got home. If you needed to use restroom, you waited uh, till you got home. So movement uh, in service was very unusual. And as soon as the music started, I moved. And it was it was then that... I knew that the Lord was um, was was drawing me to Himself, and it was um, I can remember it quite well. How long from the time that uh, that occurred to where you felt like a special call for vocational ministry? Gosh, I thought about this uh, a year or so ago, and not that I was um, fully obedient. But it was probably in, within six months, believe it or not. Uh, I went to school at Selma Street Elementary, and uh, they had, I don't know if they still have PTO, uh, PTA, but they had meetings then. And uh, my teacher asked me to say uh, the prayer, leading it, to open that meeting up. And it was on the stage at Selma Street, and I was petrified. And so I had notes and had um, probably a devotional book that I was going to read from and read scripture and then pray. Well, I opened up to the wrong page. So I, I but I didn't panic. Uh, probably I was too scared to. And I just started reading from that. And then uh, I guess looked up, made eye contact with the audience and, and prayed. And I remember her name, the, the principal's name was Miss Kramer. And she came up to me afterwards and said, that was really good. That's not what you had practiced, I know. And I said, no, ma'am. And I was afraid I was in trouble. She said, no, you were thinking on your feet. It was it was very good, and you won't understand this, but it was what was needed to be said. And it, ha- it was dealing with, with type of uh, racial uh, issues in, in that day and time. Integration was uh, just taking... Uh, some some momentum here in Dothan, and I uh, you know I was oblivious to that. So you know I was just glad to you know not be in trouble with the principal. I was in second grade, uh, so I knew then that I was nervous, but I wasn't I wasn't scared. I guess would be the best way to put it. And from that point on, I would you know I would be asked to pray in a Sunday school class, and, and it's become a joke. Any family reunions now seem to be the designated prayer. Um, so 
I guess his earliest, his earliest second grade. So from there, uh, Dothan High, or was Doth- was Northview a thing? Yeah, or? Northview was uh, came to be a thing my ninth grade year. So I uh, went to Young Junior High School, went to three schools, Selma Street, Young Junior, then Dothan High School. Um, and so the, that was the first ninth grade class at Dothan High, and that was when Northview first began. And uh, so, yeah, and from there to... Believe it or not, a year at Auburn University, for those that know me well, they'll find that hard to believe. Um, but I uh, came home, um, rededicated my life, and transferred to Alabama. No, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, but, uh, yeah, unorthodox uh, path to get to Alabama from there. And so for someone who, who felt a strong calling into the ministry as early as nine, why... Auburn than Alabama instead of a seminary. Why did you decide to go that route? That would probably be the disobedient um, path. Uh, not that I was rebellious per se. I just uh, was indecisive, which I think is probably a sin. And 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 to the when you take it extremes, when you're you're just, um, for lack of a better term, you're not as aggressive in, in really saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Um, like I said, I was compliant, but with that becomes the, uh, the negative part of that in passivity. So, um, I was following friends and they had some good friends. Um, and, and to this day, good friends, uh, they went to Auburn. I had done well in certain parts of the ACT and I said, well, yeah, it looks like engineering is the way for you. And <clears throat> wanting to, uh, probably be popular and remain, uh, good friends with people. That's, I said, okay, I'll do that. And now in reflection, didn't really pray about that. Um, and it was a time, too, uh, Lance, when was not involved in church. And my parents, as many folks do, they uh, one Sunday can become two, and that becomes four, and then it's eight, and next thing you know, you're out 16 Sundays, and we weren't in church anymore. And I think that's one reason why they um, divorced at one time. God brought them back together, and they were remarried. So it was a it was a it was a time I I'll say it was a dry time but it was it was self induced dryness. Yeah. Do you regret that path or do you think God took you there for a reason? Looking back now, I think both and. Uh, there, there, you know, when you when you contemplate it much, you gosh, you, I could have done this at a at a better pace, uh, maybe um, done some things differently, but. You know, you trust the Lord, and there's things that I, I learned through that that He taught me. So uh, He allowed those things to happen to make me the person that I needed to be. And you know, I may not have gotten to that point if I'd gone the other way. So uh, there's still people that I know that I met through those circumstances. And so, yeah, you, you sometimes I look and say, oh, "Gosh, if I if I could have done this and gotten a seminary degree and whatever," but then. I may not be here today, and I, I really can't envision myself anywhere else, uh, other than being here at Ridgecrest, being assistant or executive pastor, or whatever the uh, the title may be, and and where our family is and the friendships that I have. It's that's a big mystery that I, I think will probably remain unanswered until until heaven. You mentioned briefly having a a church that you worked with the youth there near Tuscaloosa, 
Tell me a little bit about that and what you think the primary lesson was you learned from that time. Well, that was at Gilgal uh, Baptist Church in Duncanville. It was a town and country church. It's right outside of Tuscaloosa. I was, a matter of fact, I was going to Ridgecrest in Tuscaloosa. And the, the minister of music there, uh, Scott um, Hilliker at the time, asked me if I was interested in, in being a part-time youth director. No, I was not. Uh, but he said, well, go talk to the folks. And so I went down uh, to Gilgal and uh, met them. It's just a great. The church was just blowing and going for a country church. Uh, three services, uh, buildings. And and I just, in my heart was in my throat. It was that, uh, wow, this is, I think I would like to do this. And so I did. And there's no such thing to me as a part-time minister. They just give you part-time allowances. Uh, financially, you, you're full-time. So that's the, uh, the that was in 1986. So that was the first first church I served, quote-unquote, on staff. What do you think you, you learned from that time? What, oh, my gosh. What lessons were you taught that, <laughs> that still pay off today? There's so many. Uh, I, I guess to pull a few um, is to, and I mentioned this this past Sunday when we were at the robotics competition in Auburn, uh, in order to meet a need, you first must see it. You, you can't you can't meet a need unless you see it. Uh, you can you can throw energy at it, but to truly meet a need, you see it and you get involved individually. The pastor there, Doug Reeves, was a phenomenal pastor, great preacher, uh, but he pastored well, and so I, I learned that to uh, to see people's needs. The first matter of fact, the first visit uh, Doug and I went on that was the second week I was there. And I would have office hours after I got out of class and things. But he said, hey, we need to go visit a family. And so he didn't tell me what the circumstances were until we got in, the, in his truck. He said, um, you've just been here two weeks, but this is a, uh, a 16-year-old that's had cancer. And he passed away this morning. Uh, so we're going to see the family. And I said, okay. Um, and so we got there before the funeral home folks did. And so we saw... In the bedroom, uh, this young man who'd passed away in his, uh, his sleep, but he, his eyes were open. He was he was laying there, Jim Shorts, and his parents were there, and some, I think a cousin or two, maybe a brother. Uh, I can't, I can't, I think a brother. And I was, I was, you know, in shock. And I remember this, this again, like it was yesterday. We got back in the truck, and he looked at me, said, now, Chuck, now you know the difference between a job and a calling. Uh, he said, are you okay? I said, yes, sir, I'm okay. He said, good. Uh, I am too. And you need to know he is too. So that was uh, a lesson I learned to to see a need and meet a need. And the difference between a job and a calling. That's good. Your uh, journey, as you said, wound up taking you back here. Uh, you wound up at UPS. You worked there for how long? Uh, Eighteen and a half years what lessons did you learn at UPS that actually can apply to your, your role now with the church? Well, as I said earlier, that I was coming off of, of a marriage that, that um, not this may not be the place to get into it, and I won't, but it did not work out. We had no children. I'd been married three years, and, and um, so that, that did, not, did, not, did not end well. And so um, I said, well, I'm out of the ministry. And one of those mentors, Don Carroll, I uh, went to Aniston. I remember him seeing me. He said, um, I need to talk to you. 
And he, as lovingly as he could, got in my grill. Uh, Doc Carroll, 6'5", just a big man. And he said, let me ask you, are you a believer in Christ? I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, then you are never out of the ministry. You may not serve on staff at a church, but you will always be a minister of the gospel of Christ if you are a follower and believer in him. And so uh, the Lord reminded me of that about three months into UPS because I was, I was having a pity party. You know, I had had peers and friends that had finished school and or gone to seminary. Uh, they were beginning families, and here I was. I was working part-time at Radio Shack and part-time at UPS on the, on the um, conveyor belt loading trucks. But God uh, really got in my grill in Colossians 3.23, uh, whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. And um, it was then that he reminded me, this is where I have you. This is where you are. You bloom where you're planted. So that was another lesson that I learned, to bloom where I was planted. To not so much concentrate on what I couldn't do, but focus on what I could do. And so I did. Uh, we began, um, a, what we first began as a Good Friday Bible study. The Friday before Easter, so we would have we I would we'd get biscuits and we would have a breakfast and a Bible study. And when I started driving full time, we still had it, and we got Bible studies going in at UPS and in homes with UPS drivers. Um, I was able to be part of two guys coming to know the Lord uh, there at UPS. Uh, one is here at Ridgecrest now, John Ferguson, um, and then um, I was. Um, asked to do the funeral of a guy that was killed while driving a UPS truck. And um, James Helms was his name. I was his loader. And then I later drove, and he was killed on 84 East, right outside of Ashford. Uh, he was hit head-on by a, a log truck when it was still too lame to the Georgia line. And so they asked me to do the funeral. Uh, so the lesson I learned there uh, was bloom where you're planted, uh, where God has you. Uh, don't allow what you can't do to dictate where you are with the Lord, but concentrate on what you can do for Him. So that was the that was the big life lesson there. And I think that's probably a good answer to to the next question because you transitioned from there to here. Your title is executive pastor. For people that that are listening, that are either Ridgecrest members or outside the church. You hear minister of music. That's pretty easy to to define. You. You hear Sunday school minister, that's pretty easy to define. Executive pastor is a little bit different. How would you describe what you do here? I think the process is still ongoing to what that means. But, you know, we jokingly say when um, Pastor Ray and I would go on to to conventions or or meetings, here I would be introduced as his associate or his assistant. But when we'd go to places... Uh, like St. Louis or Cincinnati, he would say, "Let you here, let, meet my exec." And I remember the first time he said, that, I looked at him and I thought, "I said, I can't wait to tell Monica I've just gotten a raise. I'm now his executive, and I'm, I've arrived." <laughs> so, uh, I, no, I, I guess from from my understanding, it's it's that I oversee or help the ministers on staff and do their day to day operations. Uh, I one of Pastor Ray's phenomenal strength is he does not micromanage. Uh, he allows people that he is confident that God's called here to serve to serve in their skill set 
and I just had the privilege of maybe watching that skill set develop and um, because I certainly don't have any professional training but real life training to encourage um, to go along answer questions and that he be answered and offer any kind of advice if asked um, type of thing so I that's my definition of an executive pastor to to help help the ministerial staff uh, be successful in, in what they're called to do given their skill set and and their talents and gifts as given by God. I wonder if you ever find it difficult or you ever struggled with your role. There's sort of being a Mary Martha element to it. And I suppose that could be true for any part of vocational ministry where you concentrate so much on the first thing I got to do, the second thing I have to do, the third thing I have to do that it can be easy to forget why you're here in the first place i, I think absolutely that's that's the the daily tyranny that we that we battle um especially you know i'm, I'm given the responsibilities by the pastor to help oversee the missions uh ministry uh help give direction to men's ministry and we have some phenomenal lay leaders that have that have done that and and be a liaison with women's ministry and we've we've had some gifted and still have to this day gifted ladies that that have headed that ministry up so my job's relatively easy in that um in addition to some preaching responsibilities when pastor ray is out but to get back uh, yes it is to make sure that you're not overwhelmed by checking off boxes and and understand that that first lesson i learned with doug reeves that there's a difference between a job and a calling and if it's a calling and then I think you're less likely, not immune to it, but you're less likely to be captivated by the task, the daily grind, but you're more captivated by the call and the people that is that are involved in that call. And it's less of an office job, but it's more of a relational job. That's good. I wonder if there's been a book or... Uh, a sermon or something that has captivated you, whether during your ministry here or when you were at UPS or any other occasion that has stuck with you that has guided you in either your professional or, or personal life? Um, well, I'm, I'm I do enjoy reading. Now, if Monica listens to this, she'll 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 laugh. She's she's a much 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 better reader than I am. But uh, you know, Brother Ray has often said that um, if you're a leader, you need to be a reader. Now, not all readers are leaders, but if you're going to lead, you need to read. So, but before that, uh, I guess one one book that that really sticks out was um, the name of the book is In Search of Significance. And there's a line in, in that book that that really helped define what I was going through at the time and helped me see clearly. It said, uh, you know, many times people base their self-worth on the love and approval of others. And I'm naturally bent as, as a people pleaser. And I think that's good in the spirit. You, you, want, you want to be friendly. You want to have the gifts of the spirit. But in the flesh, <clears throat> that could, you could base your self-worth on their love and approval, and that's not good. 
So it says, instead of doing that, you need to base your self-worth on the love and forgiveness of Christ. And uh, that's helped me. Uh, and it's not a one and done. That is, that is daily. That's almost taking up your cross daily, dying to yourself. Because you want other people to like you. You want to get that out of the boy. You want to be recognized. And in and of itself, that's not bad. But when that becomes your motivation, uh, then that is a, that's really a slippery slope, and it's it's dangerous to be on that. So there's many others, but that I guess because I'm a cookie on the bottom shelf kind of guy is don't base your self worth on the love and approval of others, but base your self worth on the love and forgiveness of Christ. What about a song or an artist? I think that may apply to different moods or, or different ways in which God may use it at the time and the place that you're in, but I wonder if there is something that, that you fall back on that is particularly inspirational to you. Um, <clears throat> it, it dates myself, but this would have been in the, um, uh, I guess, mid-'90s. Uh, Brian Duncan, uh, his music, uh, ministered greatly to me uh, when I was transitioning uh, there. When I was at UPS, um, you you tended to have the the ability to feel sorry for yourself, or maybe, oh, gosh, I'm not where I should be. And his music didn't really candy coat things; it cut to the chase where you were emotionally. And before that, going back to high school, Truth, uh, Roger Breland, and uh, how those. Uh, praise songs, you still remember those, and I still find myself uh, alone humming those. I will not do it in public, but I, I still remember. That's some of my favorite memories at UPS. I would sing in the UPS truck when I was uh, on routes that took me to rural parts of, of, of the wiregrass, not uh, residential areas. But uh, today, I, I'm trying to think. Uh, Lance, that's a great question. Michael Card comes to mind, uh, uh, very introspective lyrics in his music. Um, I've always loved hymns. I, I'm a church nerd. I've said that before from the pulpit. I, I love the hymns and how they minister and how their the theology in hymns uh, really comes out. Uh, Mile Lefevre, uh, an old uh, contemporary Christian rock artist, um, a lot of his music had influence on me. Uh, the Imperials. Gosh, I, now I'm just just going and just dating old things and not just new ones. But uh, today, I don't know if I have a favorite artist today. Um, I enjoy a lot of them. I, I enjoy things from Crowder um, to <laughs> I enjoy Gaither Vocal Band. Uh, I guess if it if it's singing about truth. Uh, and, and truth is not something, but someone, as Henry Black could be said, in experiencing God. Um, I tend to like it. It can have a country genre, or it can have a southern rock and roll, or it can have a, a folksy uh, drama. Uh, it's just uh, any and all kind of music, really. A couple of final questions, kind of piggybacking on you being a self-described church nerd, because I think that would describe me as well especially coming from someone who has been in the the private sector and now uh, on staff what's your biggest concern about the state of the church quotation marks not not just ridgecrest but just the state of the church in america over the next two five ten years mm. 
Um, I think we, if you look at it, uh, you can see there's a paradigm shift that that's to a large extent already occurred and is it still occurring. Um, it, it, church has become a second, third, fourth choice. And when I say that, I say it in this meaning, that it is <clears throat> not purely seen as an entertainment, but it is seen like, oh, what, what benefit can I get that from emotionally? Um, that, and I've been just as guilty as that as anyone else, but I think that is, um, it's frightening if you, if you look at what that means generation, generationally. Uh, <clears throat> what does that mean for my children? What does that mean for someone's grandchildren? Uh, will church life, um, be as cultural shaping as it has been in the past generations and I don't see it it's not progressing that way now now certainly God can can change it but that 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 causes me concern um, and how to combat that I don't know if you asked that or not but I've often if you ask a question like that and you say okay what difference what what can I do to 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 change that um, Gosh, I'm not sure we can totally change that, but as as church history has shown us that the church has had these these changes, seismic shifts. If you if you want to look at it, and I see the mega church uh, becoming less and less as it was maybe 15, 20 years ago, and uh, and that may not be a bad thing. Uh, it goes back again. Uh, an artist that I didn't mention a minute ago, Scott Kerpain, had a song out many years ago. Uh, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And if we drift away from that, then I, I think that can have a lot of consequences with it. And in God's sovereignty, He uses those to, to strengthen His church. So with that, I, I think um, we will see it becoming more and more of a challenge to make sure we do not fall into the trap of trying to attract people with our own means but to allow the gospel and God's love uh, to to communicate it creatively, yes, uh, but with conviction and without compromise uh, to make sure we stay on that task, keeping the main thing the main thing, uh, then God will remain faithful to his to his church and uh, and equip us to reach people maybe we haven't known we could reach before and to maybe cause us a bit of discomfort in order for us to see his glory in ways we haven't seen it before. For people who may stumble across this that are not necessarily in the Ridgecrest family, but maybe all they know about Ridgecrest is that it's the, the church with the billboard and we're not quite sure what that church is about. How would you describe it to someone that was just asking that simple question? What is Ridgecrest? Mm-hmm. Gosh. I can tell you a great journalist, Lance. Um, Ridgecrest is a group of people, I believe, because, you know, being here, first of all, since 1972, then again since 1992, it's a collection of imperfect people uh, that love each other as unconditionally as you can uh, and still be human. Um, We enjoy each other's company. Uh, In the church world, that's called fellowship. But we, I think genuinely enjoy being around one another when we meet corporately, whether that be on a Sunday or a Wednesday. 
And I really, I still believe, Lance, that that's still contagious. Mm-hmm. That if that's genuine, then and then people see that, they're attracted to it. Um, it goes back to relation. Who who in their right mind doesn't enjoy being around somebody that enjoys them? And I think that's what you find at Ridgecrest, and all under the the premise of it to be glorifying to God, that we have that in common. That one thing being Christ. Uh, we work um, to spread the gospel uh, and communicate it in mission endeavors. We both locally, nationally, and globally. Um, but first and foremost, I really, really do believe we still enjoy coming together and worshiping. And that's our first call, uh, is to worship. And in that, allow God's Holy Spirit to, to work in our lives, knowing that we're... <laughs> We're imperfect, and uh, but that's where you know we. I've often heard it said that failure is not final. So at some place you're not not afraid to fail, but you're thinking, you know what? But I I can fail with something, and people there to encourage me, offer me grace, and and press on and go to, and say, okay, let's move on from there. So I think to me that's what Richcrest is. Chuck Locke, Executive Pastor at Ridgecrest Baptist Church. Thank you for spending this time with us in Ridgecrest Stories. My pleasure, Lance. Thanks a lot. <laughs>